Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Joe Biden is a man with a green agenda. I'm announcing my plan for clean energy revolution. We're going to invest $1.7 trillion in securing our future so that by 2050, the United States will be 100% clean energy economy with net zero emissions. During his presidential campaign, he laid out his ambitious plan to slash emissions while also strengthening the economy. After months of back and forth, in August, President Biden managed to wrangle a piece of landmark legislation through Congress. This bill is the biggest step forward on climate ever, ever. And it's going to allow, it's going to allow us to boldly take additional steps toward meeting all of my climate goals and the ones we set out when we ran. At $396 billion, the Inflation Reduction Act is the largest package of climate change spending in American history. And last week at COP27, the UN's climate summit in Egypt, he reassured the world that America would lead and accelerate the shift to renewable energy. Our investments in technology, from electric batteries to hydrogen, are going to spark a cycle of innovation that will reduce the cost and improve the performance of clean energy technology that will be available to nations worldwide, not just the United States. But COP27 takes place amid a global energy crisis, and with countries doubling down on fossil fuels, the countdown is on. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, will the clean energy transition be fast enough? Later in the show, I'll speak to The Economist's global energy and climate innovation editor, Vijay Vaithaswaran, about how ambition on policy squares up to what can be achieved. But my first guest is Jennifer Granholm. She's the US Energy Secretary and at the coalface of implementing Joe Biden's green agenda. I caught up with her as she was shuttling between sessions at COP. Secretary Jennifer Granholm, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thanks so much. Glad to be on. Now, it's been a year since COP26 in Glasgow, and at the time, governments recommitted to the target of limiting global warming by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And that target was set, of course, back in Paris in 2015. But in The Economist this month, we argued that we need to face the fact the target won't be met. There's a report also by the Global Carbon Project that said if emissions remain at present levels, there's a 50% risk of breaching the threshold in nine years. So is this 1.5 target really a lost cause? Well, I certainly think we are perilously close to putting 1.5 in jeopardy. So we need to double down. We need to embrace 
really the opportunities in this clean energy transition. But just to be clear, if I were to ask you in the sense of, do you think it's still deliverable? That was the challenge that we were putting. What would your answer be? I think it's deliverable, but we are close to putting it in jeopardy. No doubt about it. I mean, the United States, for example, came here with legislative victories in hand to be able to reach our interim targets and uh, ultimately go to net zero by 2050. And our interim targets being 50% reduction in carbon pollution by 2030. The legislative victories get us to 40% reduction. And we know working with our state and local governments, we will get that extra 10. So we want to be able to say, look, we leaned in on this. We were bold. The president was really determined to be able to reach our goals and to be able to create economic opportunity from that. If we can do that, then others can do the same. So we want to inspire. In his speech on Friday, President Biden reiterated a pledge made in 2021 to provide $11.4 billion in international climate aid by 2024. But that hinges on Congress, which has only approved $1 billion for international climate funding. So how will President Biden meet his commitment when he faces such a divided Congress? I think that there is a feeling not certainly among the majority of the Republican Party, but there are climate conservatives, people who see the importance globally of meeting these goals, whose communities are deeply affected by climate change. I'm not going to oversell it because obviously there will be pushback and there's always a challenge, I can tell you, um, in most countries, but in the U.S. as well, with foreign aid, if you will. However, There is a sense that we are all in this together, that our emissions can reduce, but if others do not, then we are still experiencing these extreme weather events. So bottom line is, I think there is a way to get there, even though it will be more challenging now after our midterm election. This is the first year that so-called loss and damage, the idea of compensation from richer countries to developing ones for the impacts of climate change, has been on the COP agenda. That's quite a, a new angle compared with previous meetings. Several European countries, including Germany and Denmark, have committed to offer funds, but the US hasn't. Why not? Well, I mean, the US, I will say this, absolutely recognises that we've got to make increased efforts to address loss and damage associated with the adverse impacts of climate change. We totally understand that. And we understand the depths of the impacts, right, that climate vulnerable countries are are facing. We have a strong interest in helping to address these problems in solidarity with vulnerable countries and communities. And that's what's being negotiated as we speak. If, as President Biden said, in order to help developing countries make decisive climate decisions, that the US would show global leadership. But one way to show global leadership would be to acknowledge the principle of loss and damage. And for myself, I'm still not sure whether the US does or it doesn't. Well, we certainly acknowledge that we've got to make efforts to address the adverse impacts uh, on vulnerable countries. We know that. The questions regarding the details of the negotiations on loss and damage, really, they've got to be addressed by Secretary Kerry's team because they are right in the thick of it right now. Well, speaking of John Kerry, he's the U.S. climate envoy, of course. In recent days, he announced the government's new voluntary carbon market plan, and that would allow companies to offset their emissions by investing in the clean energy transition in developing countries. 
German officials have raised concerns that the plan could replace commitments made by governments. Why does the Biden administration think this is a good idea? Well, I think there has to be a combination of things. We've got to be a little bit flexible about how commitments can be met as we all try to push toward the bigger goals. Now, President Biden used his speech at COP to tout his Inflation Reduction Act, which passed in August. That was just a few months ago. But how long will it be before this program, which is called the the IRA, kickstarts a clean energy revolution in the US? I mean, what is the realistic time frame for when you might be able to come on a show like this and say that the US has become a clean energy superpower. Let me just say, it is happening already. Since that was signed in August, we have had some $50 billion of investment of clean energy expansions in the United States, whether it's solar companies that are expanding or investments in electric vehicles or the batteries for the electric vehicles. I can tell you that we as the Department of Energy just put out $7 billion for competition for clean hydrogen hubs. What we got back was huge interest on the part of communities and the private sector to raise their hand and say, yes, we want to be a leader in clean hydrogen. And that's a variety of types of clean hydrogen. It might be hydrogen that's generated from renewables. It might be hydrogen that is generated from nuclear. It might be hydrogen generated from natural gas, but with methane and with CO2 addressed. It might be a variety of offtakes. But the bottom line is the massive amount of interest that we've seen just on the grant programs that we've put out so far is amazing. You've got many great things on offer. I just must jump in a bit on hydrogen, the excitement or even perhaps hype around hydrogen as a replacement for fossil fuels is growing again. The Inflation Reduction Act offers a $3 per kilogram in subsidy for green hydrogen projects. You've called it a game changer. But hydrogen has had a lot of false dawns before. Why do you think this is a more durable uh, idea than the last wave of enthusiasm that we all wrote about? The important part is offtake. What does the demand look like for clean hydrogen? And historically, it's been used for say, hard to decarbonize areas, and that's very important. And we'll see as we are looking at the concept papers from those who have tried to compete for this, what uses there is. But I think that right now, because of the huge desire for baseload clean energy, that there is now a moment for taking these technologies to scale. And it's not really so much about the technology. It is more about the business plan that I think is uh, is the challenge. That is the business case. Also, the, the funding, the supply chain disruptions, the fact that we have a global recession, which is slashing funding for novel technologies and capital expenditure. However, great the promise of hydrogen, do you concede that this is very hard to deliver against the global economic backdrop that we're all facing? Well, I guess that's the question. I mean, that's why we have incentives on the table to try to take this to scale. Once you can scale something, obviously, it becomes much more affordable. We have launched a clean hydrogen earth shot, and that is to get the cost of hydrogen and especially electrolyzer-based hydrogen, which of course comes from renewable energy, down to $1 
or one kilogram within the decade. Now, these hydrogen hubs that are being uh, built up or will be built up, these will take a couple of years to happen. So we will be learning along the way. Is the business case there? Can we bring down the cost? Are we taking it to scale? And that's one of the technology innovations that we've been touting here at COP. The goal, the shot is important as we move toward these solutions that help to, you know, reduce carbon pollution everywhere. In the background of COP is the global energy crisis. The world is facing higher fuel and power prices and the war in Ukraine has exposed the reliance on Russian energy. Are the price spikes we've been seeing because of underinvestment in conventional energy? And how do you balance the need to maintain energy security and avoid price spikes with ambitious decarbonisation and net zero plans? There is clearly an overwhelming appreciation for the fact that energy security tied to fossil fuels is extremely volatile, that you don't want your energy tied either to a country whose values you do not share or to an energy source where the price is extremely volatile. And so people are looking at what is happening in Ukraine as the reason to double down on clean energy solutions, homegrown clean solutions, where you know the price for renewables, for example, continues to go down. It is not subject to these wild waves, depending on the global market. So making sure that we can continue to drive down the costs through technology, through scale, but also making sure that we are energy secure. And also, it's true for supply chains as well. So countries are taking another look at who are reliable partners in this push for clean energy. I think Russia has proven to be really almost a dangerous partner because you don't know whether they're going to weaponize energy as they have uh, in Europe. And so, and it also speaks volumes about the importance of diversifying one's energy streams, whether it's supply chain or generation capacity, you know, inside of one's own country. I often quote the energy minister from Ireland, Minister Ryan, who has said that no country's ever had their access to wind or to sun weaponized. Therefore, clean energy may be the greatest peace plan the world has ever known. And I think there is something very powerful to that. I want to talk to you about uh, America and when we talk about diversity of supply, where that leaves fossil fuels, which, of course, the aim has been to get away from. President Biden expanded the program that leases federal land for oil and gas drilling and has backed the expansion of infrastructure for LNG imports across Europe, uh, sending more oil to the continent, which, as you point out, finds itself in need because of over-reliance in part on Russian energy. So there's a paradox here, isn't there? America's passed one of the biggest pieces of climate legislation, but it still stands to gain from fossil fuel production. How should the administration be looking at that apparent contradiction? We recognize this is a transition. It is not a light switch. We have some time to be able to move to where we all want to go, uh, which is obviously a net zero world. We also know that because of actions by Russia, that the volatility of fossil fuels has been made very clear. So we want people to be able to turn the lights on. We don't want to create a backlash because people don't have access to power as we accelerate this push toward a clean energy future. Last uh, question 
for me, among the COP delegations are some notable absences, the leaders of China, Russia, India not attending. Are we kidding ourselves that we can have successful COP gatherings when the leaders of the world's largest polluters are not there? We can. I mean, as you saw, because of the the conference in Bali, we also know that there was a very positive meeting between the presidents of the US and of China. And there was hope coming out of that, that there would be some oases of diplomacy related to clean energy, that both countries recognize that they are uh, biggest emitters and that they have the biggest share of responsibility for controlling that. That to me was very positive. India has been a tremendous partner in this. We've had great relationships with them. They very much want to move toward clean. You know, just because not everybody's here, because there may be some competing um, world conferences happening, uh, doesn't mean that there isn't a commitment. In fact, I think this is the largest COP ever. Isn't it the case, though, that some of these deals have turned out to be slightly more short-termist than, than we might have hoped? I mean, we did have a, an agreement that US and China would cooperate more closely on climate. That was only last year in Glasgow, and it broke down in the summer as tensions rose over Taiwan. Now, as you reflect, actually, it is true that these talks are restarting. But in a sense, does that mean the US is committed to keeping talks alive and putting aside geopolitics to progress climate action? Yeah, that's why I call this an oasis of diplomacy. I think that because both countries recognize the importance for their people of addressing this issue, that you can have these conversations even if you disagree on other things. And I, I feel very positively about what has happened in, in Bali. Secretary Jennifer Granholm, thank you very much indeed for joining us today. You bet. Thanks so much for having me. Secretary Granholm set out why global cooperation is a crucial part of the clean energy transition. But what will it take for all that talk to turn into concrete action, not just hot air? Our global energy and climate innovation editor, Vijay Vaithaswaran, has been thinking about just that. Vijay, thanks for joining me. Great to join you, Anne. You've been in Sharm el-Sheikh for the first week of COP. How do you see the ambition on energy policy versus what's actually going to come out of this? There's a real dichotomy between the talking shop, which is really the UN, right? The 200 countries trying to get to unilateral agreement on incredibly complicated long-term topics, and the action on the ground, which is really where you see coalitions of the willing emerge, where uh, you see things moving ahead on carbon trading, on different aspects of energy investments, on private sector and public sector getting together to do new kinds of adaptation finance. And so I think there's really two different cops that I saw when I was there. On the official track, there's a lot of banging the drum for loss and damage on reparations, things that are going to be really hard to make progress on uh, and certainly in any meaningful way to get a lot of money for the very vital problem of dealing with the kind of catastrophes that are going to happen in the developing world as a result of climate. Whereas in practical terms, on the ground, unofficially, and even outside of COP, if you look at the G20 in Indonesia, where Biden and other world leaders flew over there after uh, the first week of COP, we're actually seeing progress. So I would look at it at both the official and the unofficial ways. You've just mentioned the other big conference that's going on at the moment at the G20 summit in Bali. The US, along with other member countries, signed a $20 billion deal to help Indonesia use less coal. How important is that pact? 
I think it's actually quite innovative and could be a real bellwether. This kind of partnership, they call it a just energy transition partnership, JetP in the jargon. We had one come out of the previous COP in Glasgow last year in Scotland for South Africa. That was an $8.5 billion deal. It was a little bit sluggish, a little hard to get moving, but it was extremely important because, of course, South Africa has a lot of coal and it's going to be very disruptive to the political economy to move off of that coal, but it's vital. Indonesia has even more coal and is even more addicted. And so this $20 billion deal that's announced, about half of that from official sources, about half from the private sector, could really turbocharge um, an energy transition in that important growing country. Having success in Indonesia from a, a capable administration, the leader of Indonesia, Jokowi, he's quite dynamic uh, and he's able to get stuff done. So I think this deal is a signal both of American intent that the Biden administration wants to show they can get some things done and act on climate, and there is some global enthusiasm for it, but also about how to bring together innovative finance, public money and private money to help ease the coal transition, get coal plants offline faster and bring in the space for the private sector to fund those renewable plants that are uh, so important to replace that coal so that the country can keep growing. Certainly true. But over the last year, the climate crisis and the energy crisis have seemed to come into conflict. One thing that's been clear is that you need energy security through the transition. How do you strike the right balance? Is it simply more investment required into renewables, but also into fossil fuels because we are now looking at transitional periods? You use the right word, transition, right? There's a whole category of investing now, transition assets. You can't just turn off the power plants overnight. So we're going to need fossil fuels during the transition. And even the optimistic scenarios from official forecasters like the International Energy Agency, they say that actually we're going to maybe peak the use of fossil fuels by 2030. That's their newest forecast that came out a couple of weeks ago. But that peak could be quite a, a long and undulating peak for a number of years or even a couple of decades. And so we have to be grown up about it, be more realistic and say, if we're going to keep the lights on and provide opportunities, particularly for developing countries to advance and develop and deal with energy poverty and raise up their populations into the middle classes, we're probably going to need to rely particularly on natural gas, which is the cleanest of those fossil fuels, uh, rather than shut them down and try to block them, as Europeans have tried to do in the case of some African developments in, in gas, even as they hypocritically guzzle the world's natural gas in the form of LNG, liquefied natural gas, sucking up the cargoes and making them too expensive for poor countries to buy. That hypocrisy has been noted by minister after minister at the COP summit. That's an important, delicate point to make. Well, I also asked Secretary Granholm about America's increased exports of LNG to Europe. She called it a transition fuel. But what does the Biden administration need to do to make sure that that transition happens fast enough? And how does it avoid a fossil fuel effective lock-in? There's a couple of things that need to happen. And we ran a, a technology quarterly a little bit earlier in the year that I reported on the two components on the upstream part, that is the place where oil and gas is made. America is one of the world's biggest producers of oil and natural gas, thanks to its shale revolution. We need to make sure that those energies are produced without massive escaping methane. Methane is a potent natural gas, much more powerful than even carbon dioxide, even though it's shorter lived. And we now have the ability to detect and to monitor and to manage those fugitive methane emissions so that you make that natural gas particularly as cleanly as possible upstream without those very noxious and dangerous emissions. But then downstream, this is where countries that receive that gas can do more as well. And what Germany is pioneering and Europe more generally is trying to think of ways of consuming that natural gas in the transition 
with some kind of end date. That is, you don't just lock in fossil fuel assets for the next 30, 40 years, which would normally be the lifetime of LNG terminals or of uh, combined cycle gas plants, but rather give a limited license to operate, after which either they're shut down or they're converted to cleaner fuels like hydrogen, which is very much in vogue these days, or other kinds of green fuels that are derived from natural gas without having those greenhouse gases. So that's the way to think about it, both upstream and downstream. You've certainly argued before that oil and gas are not going to vanish overnight. The world will still be dependent on fossil fuels for some time, in particularly emerging markets. While the energy transition is in process, can anything be done to make the industry more responsible so that it's contributing to decarbonisation at the same time as providing that reliability, at least for the transitional period? Well, here there's a difference of opinion, right? If we look at the behavior of the oil majors on the two sides of the Atlantic, in Europe, the pressure from activism, from uh, shareholders, from governments, from lawsuits has pushed companies like Shell and BP to diversify into renewables. The American big oil companies are not doing that by and large, but instead they're investing increasingly in areas that are a little bit closer to their area of expertise, that is carbon capture and sequestration, developing hydrogen, for example. These are things that are closer to their engineering and geological skill set. Direct air capture, which is one of the novel technologies for sucking carbon dioxide literally out of the air. Uh, the two of the world's biggest scale-up projects in this are in Texas, led by Occidental Petroleum, which is one of the big shale drillers. And if you look at the national oil companies, you see both Saudi Aramco as well as the national oil company belonging to the Emirates, which is called Agnoc, uh, actually spending a huge amount of money developing hydrogen projects and expanding into some of these decarbonizing areas. Now, let's be wary that some of this is obviously virtue signaling for the purposes of persuading uh, ESG investors to not to dump their shares. But when you begin to see the amount of capital expenditures going into the many billions, which is now beginning to happen. When you begin to see the kind of subsidies the American government, Jennifer Granholm and her administration, is putting towards things like carbon capture through the new Inflation Reduction Act, green hydrogen, these companies are now actually going to be putting huge amounts of money uh, along with other investors as well. So I think there's a potential for this actually to take off in a significant way and, and help decarbonize the footprint of some of the oil and gas activities. So Vijay, just before you go, I know you've been guiding listeners through COP27 on our science and technology podcast, Babbage, over the last few weeks. How's that been? Oh, it's been great fun. My colleague, Katrine Brahik, and I took over the science podcast, Babbage, this month. We're going to continue to um, do more with Alok Jha, the show's host, guiding the way. So this week's episode was about how the energy crisis has affected action on climate change and whether or not this should be seen as an opportunity to accelerate the climate transition or possibly as a setback to it. We'll also be back next week to wrap up COP27 and to look at what's coming next. Well, I can certainly recommend it. And whether you're an expert or a newbie, there is a lot to get into there on Babbage. And Vijay, thank you so much for joining me. It's been a delight. Thank you. And do let us know what you think about anything you've heard in this show. Send your questions, comments and feedback to podcasts at economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. You can read more reporting from VJ and our climate and energy team on what's happening at COP27 and much more over on our website. To enjoy all of our journalism, you do need to be a subscriber. We've got a special offer just for our listeners. Visit economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. 
My producer is Alicia Burrell. The bookings producer is Melanie Starling Condon. And the executive producer is Hannah Mourinho. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs> 